Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Paul's Points. I'm your host, Paul Fritschner. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't done so yet, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really anywhere podcasts are available. And while you're at it, leave a rating and a review if you can. I'd love to hear from you so I know what you like and I can put more of that content into my next few episodes that are coming out in the next few weeks. Well, on today's episode, I have Jonas Brothers percussionist, Demian Ariaga. He's also the host of the Music Mentor podcast, which just came out on Spotify, so you can go check that out. I'll talk about Demian and how I know him and some more background info on him in just a second. But first, some sports news from the week. Two things I want to talk about. The first came out a couple of days ago. I'm recording this on Wednesday night. The Major League Baseball schedule was announced. All the teams got their 60-game schedules the other night. And the Cincinnati Reds have the easiest first two weeks of the season. Now, we've seen the Reds get off to some hot starts before, but it's been, oh man, going on a decade since we've seen the Reds play meaningful baseball into late August and early September. So to be nice, either way, just by default, just by the way the season's designed here late in the summer, the Reds are going to play meaningful baseball into the late part of August and early September, no matter what's really going on. And we've seen, like I said, the Reds, they've had some of those real quick first two weeks of the season. And if they can utilize that easy strength of schedule through August 6th, then maybe we see them push for an NL Central title this year. Who knows? Who knows? But I think the Reds have the talent to compete into the late part of the season for sure, especially in a 60-game sprint. On the other side, the Washington Nationals, defending World Series champions. The one thing that I picked out from the MLB Network's telecast of the schedule release, and I forget who said it, if you look at Max Scherzer, who will likely start on opening day, or even Steven Strasburg, whoever the Nationals decide to go with, their opening day starter will start four times in the team's first 13 games. That's incredible, and it's such a catalyst for a way to get off to an early lead in the division, which, like I said, might be all you need. Well, the other bit of news, and this is not so good news, is that the Ivy League has decided to cancel all sports until the new year. Now, if you remember, the Ivy League was the first team to shut things down back in March, and everybody at the time when the Ivy League did it thought maybe they were overreacting, but then within a matter of 48 hours, everybody else followed suit. And the Ivy League turned out to kind of be the trendsetters in that area. Now, also you got to factor in that Rudy Gobert tested positive. He shut down the NBA, and from there it was a trickle-down effect to a lot of the other major leagues, uh, other professional leagues, I should say. But, you know, this, this is a big development here to see the Ivy League completely shut down everything until at least January 1st, which includes basketball. So basketball teams won't be able to play basically through their non-conference schedule and even into the new year, which is huge for so many teams that even had the Ivy League teams on their schedule. So we'll see how everything gets rearranged. Maybe if other teams individually, other schools, I should say, follow suit with that, other conferences, who knows. But this coronavirus is still developing now here into the mid part of July, and who knows where we'll see this going over the next month or so. But 
Now we turn our attention to today's interview. Jonas Brothers percussionist Demian Ariaga. How do I know him? Well, last August, almost a year ago now, I was sitting in an apartment and I was watching Cornhole. It was about 1 a.m. on ESPN. And I thought I would search Twitter just to see who else <laughs> might be watching Cornhole at the same time I was. And Demian's tweet was the top search result. So I clicked on his profile. I responded to his tweet. And then he responded back to me. We got into a little bit of a conversation. I followed him. He followed me back. We started DMing back and forth and ended up talking for a while. And then fast forward about a month, the Jonas Brothers were playing a concert in Cincinnati. My girlfriend and I went. I DM'd Demian before the concert. He came up onto the concourse so we could talk and get a picture. That went great. So now fast forward to this past March, and with all of the coronavirus stuff going on, I was doing some interviews for my YouTube channel, which if you want to watch this interview, you can go and check out my YouTube channel. Just search Paul Fritchner. But I was doing these interviews, and I thought it'd be great to branch out from sports, get a different perspective, get a maybe a breath of fresh air from a different industry. And I reached out to Demian, and we ended up doing this interview for over an hour, well over an hour, and it was phenomenal. He talked about so many different things, touring with the Jonas Brothers. I mean, he goes all the way back to when Nick Jonas was just doing his solo career. Then Nick brought him on when the Jonas Brothers reunited, and Demian was on the tour all last summer with them. He's played on uh, Saturday Night Live. He's played Madison Square Garden. He's done so many different things over the course of his music career. So many experiences to speak to. But we didn't only talk music. He's a huge soccer fan. And he's a huge fan of women's soccer. So he talked about some of his fandom for women's soccer. How he became a fan of women's soccer. And where his fandom with those teams has taken him here over the last few years. You can follow Demian on Twitter. Just search his name at D-E-M-I-A-N-A-R-R-I-A-G-A. And you can follow me. Just search my name at Paul Fritchner. And here he is, the Jonas Brothers percussionist, Demian Ariaga. Demian, thanks for coming on today uh, to talk with me and, and just kill some time, really, you know, with, <laughs> with everything going on right now, you at your house and in Los Angeles. I'm here in yes. Cincinnati. How's everything treating you? Everything's good. All things considered. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, things are, are uh, way better than I expect them, expected them to be when we heard about this quarantine situation. Um, we've managed, I've been, been staying very productive and active and uh, just trying to be, you know, as, like I said, as productive every day and try to take advantage of this situation and know that I'm not ever probably going to have as much free time to do a lot of things and learn. So I'm trying to take advantage of that as much as possible. Yeah. So you and I met back in probably the late part of August when I was sitting on my couch yes. around one in the morning watching cornhole and I yeah. did a Twitter search to see who else was watching. Right. And you were right. watching too. I have was. you kept have you seen any cornhole since you were um, bored that day watching that? I've seen a couple and I've played a few times and uh, you know, I, I was on tour recently and there were a couple of like sort of like parties that we had and there was always like a cornhole <laughs> set for some reason. And I had seen it and it felt like this very, very specific thing, you know, like beer pong. I always thought it was like, I just, I've always thought beer pong is the stupidest thing in the world. 
because I'm not good at it and I don't drink beer anymore. I don't drink alcohol, but if I was younger and I grew up around that, I would have loved it. And I would probably try to be the best at, at beer pong. But anyway, cornhole was just like, I thought it was like the stupid thing. And then I, cause I didn't know anything about it. And I started watching it that day and I was like fascinated by it. And just, I love in sports. I've always loved the, um, sort of little nuances and, and, you know, like how Jeter would fix his gloves a million times and like all these other things I love, I love about that. And then these guys had a specific way of like holding the bag and doing the thing and then flipping them. <laughs> and just like, I just love the guys who would just like throw them, just like flick them, like nothing mattered. And they were just like random dudes that like, you know, truck driving guys that like not athletes that, you know, they're slinging back beers all day and they just like throw the thing and they're just really, really good at it. So I like that aspect of just like normal people excelling at stuff because they just found something that they love and they're passionate about like you with broadcasting or myself with music, you know? Yeah. It's probably pretty a good sport right now for social distancing six feet apart. <laughs> yes. You don't play with anybody. Exactly. Exactly. That's, a, that's absolutely right. So we'll get into your background here with music and where you started. You came up, you were, grew up in uh, Venezuela and, and came here to the United States and you went to college in Boston. And take us through your background briefly and, and how you got connected to the heights that you've achieved now. Well, it, it all started in Venezuela. Like you said, I was born and raised, um, come from a very supportive family in the arts and sports and everything I ever wanted to do. I played a lot of soccer growing up in, in just sports in general, but soccer was and still is my, my biggest passion. And at some point my sister had graduated from high school and got accepted to a college in Boston. So instead of sending her on her own, um, we all decided to move for a couple of years to help her get settled. And then we went back to Venezuela. So that's what I did. I, I spent a couple of years in Massachusetts and it was magnificent seeing Boston in a, a little big city, you know, and, and skateboarding all over and um, learning how to take the train on my own and take the buses and sort of trying to starting to become independent, which it was very difficult back in Venezuela coming from where I was from in Caracas from some, some sort of like a upper middle class type of upbringing where like public transportation wasn't viewed as the safest thing and sort of coddled and, and afraid to be completely honest on, on, on my part. Yeah. It's not what it, it is now. It used to be much safer. Um, but I, that was one of the beauties of living in America and Boston and, and going to Fenway park and becoming a Patriots fan and all those things were, were beautiful. And then I went back to Venezuela. I finished my high school there I took half a year of college and I started doing sociology, which was sort of suggested by my student counselors and all these uh, school counselors and all these other things. But it wasn't what I loved. It was almost like I filled out the survey and whatever spat out, it said sociology. So I was like, well, I guess I have to do that because music as a profession was never an option. Um, during this whole period, I played music and I played drums and I was obsessed with drumming and percussion but it was never an option to do that as a, as a form of li livelihood. It was always having to do with engineering, audio engineering and all these other things that I, I hated. I thought it was very intimidating. I didn't understand. I didn't see the correlation between music and, and engineering. And my dad is a chemical engineer. So when I thought of engineering, I thought of him, of MIT, of these like uber smart people. And I wasn't that. I liked knowing about art and history and philosophy and stuff like that. So there was like this dynamic and this, this sort of 
not compatible nature of engineering and music. So I blocked music as a whole because it was synonymous with engineering. So after a miserable six months in, in the college <laughs> there, um, studying something that I didn't want, I, my parents sat me down and they said, like, look, we, we can see you're not doing well emotionally and we know you don't wear you wear your emotions on your sleeve and you're clearly not happy we suggested you drop out of college and figure something out that you really enjoy but whatever it is that you do you need to go to the best school you can and apply the best uh, my family is very much into higher education so it was never an option to not go to college it was a matter of which college you wanted to go to so I decided to try, give music a shot because it was what made me the happiest and what I felt I had the most ability for because I couldn't make up for the lost time as far as the athleticism in, in soccer. Um, and I wasn't that, I didn't have the ability in general. I just had the passion and love for the game and certain things within the game came easy to me, like the vision and passing and a couple of things. But as far as like stamina and fight and, you know, uh, all these other things, resilience and stuff like that. I didn't really have it in my locker, so to speak. So I decided to do music and I moved to Boston and I applied to Berkeley College of Music a couple of times and I didn't get accepted for lack of music knowledge, music theory knowledge, I should say. And then eventually I did get accepted in 2001 and I thankfully graduated in 2004. And uh, I stayed there for a few years doing music and, and I, I, I had met my favorite singer and of all time and, and of my favorite band, I got to meet him and it was like, it was kind of magical. It was like my first gig was with my favorite singer ever. And I, um, I fell in love with, with that feeling and sort of became addicted to that. And I decided to move to LA to pursue more of that and work with more people that I loved and admired and respected. And Currently, I well, not currently, but I, <laughs> I play percussion with the Jonas Brothers and we just finished a basically a seventh month tour. It started August 7th and it ended February 29th, the 28th. So it was insane. So before we get into the Jonas Brothers, on your profile on the Berkeley website, you said one of your quotes was, uh, within the first week of college, you were humbled by the sheer talent of your fellow drummers and you went into percussion. Oh, yeah. is, that, is that a nice way of saying that you chose the smart path and went into percussion as, as a percussionist and you didn't want to be a drummer or what, what is that line there? The, the line is, that's a great question, Paul. The line is that I walked in, mind you, in where I grew up, like a lot of people in smaller, even though Caracas is a massive city, but there weren't a lot of drummers around me and it was almost like word of mouth. And I thought I was pretty good. And I was better than most of the drummers that I had seen or played with or interacted with. And I could play songs that they couldn't. So you assume that you're good. And then you go to the best <laughs> music college in the world and you walk in. And I, that first week, I remember walking down the, the practice rooms and I heard drummers that are, are now killing it and are among the best on the planet. And I was just like, what the hell am I getting myself into? What is this? It's like, imagine if you're a baseball guy and then you go to college, right? And you go to the first batting practice just on your own to meet mm -hmm. the team. And it's Cody Ballinger and Mark, Mike Trout. And I don't know, yeah. whoever hits the ball, I don't even know. And it's like, what is this? What, what am I doing? <laughs> so I had a moment, sort of like a coming to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, I know 
a lot about drumming and I know enough where I can teach myself. And I'm among these musicians and in a music college where I, I have the tools and, and, and have the ability to learn a lot and get better on my own and through electives and so on and so forth. Why not take this opportunity to learn something new, something that I've always liked doing. And it was a, the path of least resistance. At that point, I still saw those people as my competition. Later on in my life, I, I shifted the way I thought and sort of that whole cliche of you being or myself being the only competition that matters and all that stuff. Yeah. And it's a cliche for a reason. But so I was like, okay, what can I do in percussion that is different? Well, I can play with drummers that I love. I can do um, things that very few people do, which in, in reality, not as a matter of ability, but in the history, as and you know, as a, as a fan of drums and percussion, there's only a handful of guys and, and girls that do sort of the pop percussion thing, maybe 10, 12. Whereas drummers, there's an infinite amount of drummers that are playing with thousands of people. So I thought that would be really cool, you know, in terms of like a, a long game move, you know, to, to plan ahead and see like, okay, I'm always going to play drums. I'm, I'm always going to do it. I'm going to try my best, but maybe as far as getting education, now that I'm here, why not learn something that I haven't learned instead of learning sort of going back and plugging in gaps of knowledge that I have, which I can do that on my own. And why not start from scratch and, and learn something from, from the very basic level. Um, yeah. And that's what I did with, with hand percussion. And I specialized in Afro-Cuban hand percussion. So all the Latin stuff, the congas, bongos, um, shakers, tambourines, and all that, all that stuff that's, that's important for my folkloric sort of background in, in applied to pop music and rock. And stuff. Yeah, that was sort of the same background or not background, I guess I should say, but the same thought process that I had with broadcasting is when I was going into college and I was looking at a lot of these sports highlights and you're looking at sports center and the way things are evolving right now. And you're thinking, okay, 10, 12 years down the line, when I'm really getting into the business, who knows what sports center or linear television is going to look like down the line when you're getting highlights on Twitter or you're checking your phone or you can get scores and condensed stuff in two to three minutes. You don't have to watch an hour long sports center or, or things like that. And I thought, well, there's always going to be a need for live games or broadcasting. So I might as well go into play by play. So it seems like it's the same sort of thought process that you want to play the long game into setting yourself up. And it also seems like you've done that pretty well. Yeah. I mean, right I, choice. Yeah. And I also think there's, there's something important about the, the choice being the intention behind the choice. So when you have positive thinking and you are convinced of the, your love for something and you're going to give it your best, I think that you sort of make the best of the situation. So your love for, you sort of impregnate that choice with love and with attitude and with positivity. So that's why things work, in my opinion, not that they work because I made the choice. It's because of why I made the choice and eventually sort of led me to make it a successful thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So who were some of the other, or do you remember some of the names of, of the drummers that you passed by in those halls? Are there big names out there now that you went to school with? Yeah. I mean, there, there's some big names. There might not be sort of super well-known as far as like, you know, Dave Grohl's of the world and stuff like yeah. that, but definitely. So there's a, there's a, sort of type of drumming called gospel chops, which is predominantly done or it's done by um, 
drummers in churches in, in all over America. And it, it, incredibly funky, technical, very intricate drumming. And I was sort of at the beginning of that generation of it being popularized because it, it, it got viral through YouTube and a lot of people, it started growing and all these other things. So it was amazing. So some of the drummers that were around me were these guys like Dana Hawkins, a girl named Nikki Glaspy is unbelievable. Um, Thomas Pridgen, um, Justin Raines, it's also an amazing bass player. Um, and just a bunch of other guys, John Epcar, who's uh, killing it in New York. And just, I mean, it's Kendrick Scott, who plays, uh, he's a jazz, one of the best jazz drummers right now. And just this guy, Jordan Pearlson and Tony Escapa, who plays with Ricky Martin and all these, um, it's just insane. I, I literally lose track. And that's one of the beauties of <laughs> Berkeley College of Music. So I was just like blown away and just guys that you've never heard of dudes that, you know, like when I first met that girl, Nikki, that I told you, she had never owned a drum set in her life, you know, and she was the best drummer I had ever heard. And I was like, this is unbelievable. So this girl that, you know, never had a drum set in me, this spoiled rich kid that had three drum sets in a year or something like that. I couldn't play any of what <laughs> she was playing. It sort of made me realize sort of priorities and take a step back and realize what's Need, what needed to be done in my life so um th those were some of the drummers that i saw and then you you then see people that are killing it or, or on tv or something you're like wait a minute i went to school with that guy i remember that yeah so it's yeah. pretty neat so uh, over your career i mean you've played with a whole list of names that you have i mean huge names from iggy azalea victoria justice demi lovato some of the others but Jonas Brothers are who you've been touring with and who you've been linked with for a while, but you got started with the Jonas Brothers through Nick, right? Yeah, I mean, kind of, sort of. I had, I was working at a school called School of Rock in LA, and we had an adult program, which was a over 18-year-old um, students, and I was teaching this girl drums, and her boyfriend was, at the time, was the drummer for the Jonas Brothers. And we started hanging out and me and Jack, the drummer, we became pretty good friends. And about a year later, he told me that they were looking, that Nick had this idea for adding percussion to the band and that he had spoken to the music director and the music director was a guy that I had gone to college with actually. And this and was while, this was while Nick was doing his solo career, right? No, this was Jonas Brothers. This was oh, the, be, way before that. The, oh, so this is the original Jonas Brothers. Yes. The original the, Jonas Brothers. Okay. Yeah. This before two, before they broke up and then got back together. Correct. This was in 2010. Got it. Got so it. Nick Nick had done some solo stuff, but that was just in parallel with with the Jonas Brothers. So this was in 2010, and they wanted to add percussion um, to the to the band because every year they added something different, either horns or strings or another musician. So they kind of started doing that stuff, and they found me and they called me, and I was on tour. I was in Costa Rica with another, with a guitar player by the name of Richie Kotzen, who was a guy that I grew up idolizing and listening to. And, and I was on tour with him and it was like the perfect tour for me and the perfect life. And I was like, oh my God, it's awesome rock music. And I was playing drums and it was just amazing. And I got a call and it was the music director for the Jonas Brothers. And he told me, it's like, hey man, we've seen your stuff. We love it. You're in, you're in the band if you want. Uh, and before you say no, just read this email that I'm going to send you with your rate and with where we're going to be touring and all this other stuff. And I got the email. It was like the best email I ever got in my life. And it was just outstanding. And I played with them for about six months. And then they took a break in 2010. And um, a few things sort of 
went by. Everybody sort of went in their own direction. Nick did solo stuff. Joe did solo stuff. And then I got called to play with Joe. Uh, about a year after I stopped with the Joe Bros, we did a tour um, all over the U.S. And then in it was most like fly dates here and there. Um, but it was it spanned the whole region basically. And then um, then I did a couple of little shows with Nick here and there. And then about four years went by and Nick out of the blue wanted to record some music and he needed some percussion and he called me and I went to the studio. We sort of reconnected and I did something about six months later and he wanted to change the band, the look and feel of the band, wanted different people, different attitudes, different sort of approach to his music that he had played the same way for so many years, his solo stuff. And he called me or his management called me and he asked me if I wanted to play drum set for him on his solo stuff. And I love it. I, I've always loved his music more than the Jonas Brothers, full disclosure. Uh, it's music that I, I like more. And it was just the best gig for me because it was funk and rock. And I had the freedom to play his music the way I heard it and not the way that his former drummers played it, which... I necessarily didn't have the technical ability to do a lot of the stuff that they were doing. So I was just able to do it my way, interpret it my way and be as musical as I could. You know, it's like the equivalent if you get to call a game and somebody tells you to call it just like somebody else. And you're like, well, what about Paul's way? I want to call yeah. it Paul's way. And then when you get that and somebody, your boss is like, Paul, I just want you to be yourself. Just do it. It's like the, the biggest compliment and the biggest instruction you can get. So I was able to do that. And then about a year or two years into that, their rumblings of a reunion started sort of happening with the brothers and they decided to put the band back together and they wanted percussion. And thankfully I was in the mix and they called me and they wanted me to play. And I've been with them since, uh, like I said, basically so we started doing this kind of stuff in April of last year. So it's just been outstanding. And, and I, I'm so thankful for, for that opportunity. What's the planning process behind the scenes as much as you can go into detail about it? I know there's obviously some things you probably can't talk about, but what's the planning process for a group as big as the Jonas Brothers to go behind the scenes to ask you to say, hey, we haven't been together for this many years. We want to get back together. We know this is going to be a huge deal, but they have to record all their new music. They have to basically put a new album out. And then they have to plan their whole tour. And then all of that got released like right around the same time. What's the planning process in that and keeping it all under wraps and for you being able to work with them to get all that ready and have it be as top quality as you want it? That's a great question. I do think that this, and also this is my understanding of sort of how things developed and, you know, as a, percussionist in a musician you're sort of on the outside and even though I know I've known these guys forever I don't intrude I don't ask them questions that I shouldn't be asking and I see them as much as I love them they're friends I see them as my bosses and I, there's a lot of respect when it comes to that and privacy and all these other things however how I interpret this whole planning that you're 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 mentioning was way less planned than you than you would think I, it is my understanding that they were just organically writing music and they wanted to just play a few shows and release the album and play a few shows and see what <laughs> happened type of thing. And then they released Sucker and it blew up and it was a number one and it was just insanity. 
and the demand went through the roof and the video was a huge success and all these other things. So the planning in a way has to start with, with the artistic intention. So they wanted to write music and from that moment on, I'm sure their team and themselves that things start working, you know, and, and they start sort of the gear start turning and things start getting going into place. And, you know, they're, 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 they have a team of people, but, but nothing can happen without either Nick or Kevin or Joe having an idea or an opinion. Of course, management might suggest something, but it's all, you know, those three guys decide they come up with stuff. They're, they're incredibly um, creative and original and very self-aware and they understand things because they've been in this business for a long, long, long time. So I think it was more of a, instead of this proactive thing of like, this is what we do. This is the album. This is how we're going to promote it. This is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And this super planned thing. I don't think that it was that way. I think it was more of a, an organic thing. And obviously they have belief from their label and management, but when they released it, I think it surpassed everybody's expectations. And then you start plugging in the gaps and you're like, wait a second. If, the, if we can do 30 dates, why not try to do 40 and 50 and 60 or whatever it is? And next thing you know, we played close to a hundred shows. So those things are sort of, you would think they're more proactive. I think in this case was more reactive to the natural sort of, phenomenon that the song soccer was you know and, and also for for people that are not in this business i think it's important for them to understand that some when you see an artist or you see a song be a success or whatever there's so many things that have to work at the same time for it to push in the right direction and a lot of people big high up whatever they also need to believe in that and, and decide there's some people that decide this is what's going to be a hit this is what's going to be you know, important or this is what we're going to push and so on and so forth. So I think they got really, um, I wouldn't say lucky because they've worked, they're work harder than anybody I've ever known in my life. Uh, they understood what was going on and they had um, a lot of things going for them. And when they saw this window of making a push, they pushed through and otherwise it would have just been like this, you know, five minute, fame thing 15 minutes of re-fame type of thing but they push forward they released a bunch of songs the videos are outstanding and and it boils down also and sorry to make this so long-winded but it's all about the fans the they have the best fans in the world and i know everybody says it but i've lived it and i've seen it and it just and as a fan of music i'm nowhere near as big a fan of any band any band or anybody like jonas fans are of them and it's just amazing to see the response and, and people, you saw the show and people yeah. don't sing along. They like scream, cry and yell along. Yeah. So that it's just beautiful. And it's just, you just got to give them what, what, what they want. And they keep, there's this offer and demand thing. And, and it's just been beautiful to, to see and be a part of. And, and, and like Nick always says, you know, the second bite of the op apple has been even sweeter for them. And I'm so happy for them. And, and so I'm so privileged to, have the, the best, you know, seat in the house behind them, watching them and seeing how they do their thing. It's just amazing. And also to see their growth from 2010 to now, when I saw them as kids and now they're grown ass men that um, are successful, they're emotionally sound uh, and, and humble and incredibly generous and 
they're just amazing people. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to be with them. So take us through your role as a part of the tour. You're the percussionist with the band. You're on tour. You're on the stage. You're with the guys day in and day out. But your role of from practicing and rehearsing and nailing down every last detail, I mean, so much has to go into that show to to detail for two hours of entertainment. And one of the things that I noticed when I went to the show, there was no intermission. It was back to back to back to back to back. It was two hours. And really nobody even, none of the guys even really stopped to talk that long either. And sometimes in concerts, you'll see the lead musician come out and and give a, you know, two or three minute speech or whatever, just to give everybody some time to take a deep breath. And maybe there's an intermission. It was just, it was like you walked out of the arena and it was like, whoa, two-hour whirlwind and the logistics of that have to be incredible so what's what from you as somebody being on the show and on the tour from the planning and the rehearsing to getting on the stage and working out the kinks maybe in the first show or two to where you're rocking and rolling by the middle of the summer how does that work for you and you can take as long or as short as you want to answer that okay so it all starts with the song Right. And the need for whatever instrument I play within that song or what what my instruments are going to either add or maybe intrude in the song. Right. In my case, as a hand percussionist, what I need to do is to basically play what's on the record. First of all, the sounds that I hear on the record. So, for example, if I hear a tambourine or I hear congas or I hear this clicky clacky thing that I don't know what it is. I adopt those sounds and I try to mimic them or play them to the best of my ability with whatever instrument I feel is the closest to that sound. So the first thing I have to do is listen to the song and see what I could, what the song needs, right? What, what is in the song? Then I think about, okay, what can I, how can I duplicate those sounds or replicate those sounds? And then what I can add if I don't hear something that I think might be cool or that I think more, that's sort of where ego comes in. Like, this is what I would do if this would have been me or type of a thing. You sort of take those things and you put it in your backpack, so to speak. And then when you rehearse, you sort of mark it and you play what you hear. And there's always a music director. Every band basically has a music director that calls the shots and they know about every instrument and they know what they want to hear and they want to try several things. And, you know, these songs are, recorded in a studio with maybe not real percussion it's it's sequenced um Mm -hmm. in their tracks for example so we have the ability to hear if if there there's congas shakers and tambourines played at the same time for example we go in and we choose which instruments i can do on my own and if we leave the shaker and i play tambourine and, and congas or if i only play congas and shakers and tambourine are in the tracks or what we do, right? So there's this push-pull and compromising of, of what needs to be done. And that happens basically in every instrument. So as an instrumentalist, when it comes to percussion, when I don't need to deal with harmony and notes and chords and stuff like that, my reference is the drummer. And I happen to play with Jack Lawless, who is the best drummer to play with because he's consistent, solid, incredibly musical, never makes mistakes, um, knows the songs inside out and it's just a phenomenal person to play with. So I'm constantly trying to sound like one person with him. So that's as far as sort of the musical thing from a 
personal perspective, I always try to do sort of three ways to play the same song. The very basic minimalist song, what's on the record. Then I take it the other way and I make it like as if it was like a Carlos Santana freaking song or something like that. And then I, I do something kind of, I sort of split the difference. And I, that's sort of when your flavor is added or where I hear certain things. And I've always tried to be as humble as possible. And if there's something that musicians don't like and drummers is being told what not to play or what they don't are, what they thought about isn't good or isn't a good idea or isn't musically tasteful. It hurts us. It bothers us. And I've learned to not deal with that in a negative way and embrace it and know that the music director knows way more than me and to trust them and to trust him or her. And it's worked wonders in my career because they are always right. And <laughs> as much as I would like to do something cooler or play a cajon here or do a conga solo here, <laughs> just wants me to clap, I'll clap. And that's what I have to do. So that's as far as like the rehearsal stuff like that. Also to understand that I'm a very small part of a big picture, not only within the band, because within the band, the percussion, as much as it adds stuff, it's not that important as the bass or the guitar, for example. So I need to understand my role within that and know what, that if I'm going to do something, it has to be meaningful, purposeful, and at the same time, not be in the forefront unless it's called upon like okay here's the conga solo or here's this part the bongos play here until i'm not called i won't do it to to try to force the issue is like if you're a, a if you're on first base if you're a runner on first base you don't just steal second whenever you feel like it you gotta <laughs> wait for that instruction right and the the, the manager knows or, or, or whoever, you know, they give you the sign to go or not to go. You trust them. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But there's a trust in your speed, in your ability, in your, you know, torque, in all these other things. So those things are sort of similar. So, and, and I try to uh, understand my, not minimize my role, but understand with humility that my role is not as important and also, for my role to be important, I have to do it well in, in, in as, as professional way as possible so that other people can do what they do. If I'm not doing my percussion well, the drummer is going to sound like he doesn't know what he's doing. Because if I stop way too soon or way too late, it's going to sound like he made the mistake because he's what stands out the most. So if he doesn't stop at the right place or he sounds like he's stopping at the right, wrong place, the bass player might get confused and all these things fall. I'm not saying I'm the cornerstone by any means, but it's okay. You can take credit. You can, no, 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 I mean, but no, you can say the Jonas brothers wouldn't exist without you. It's okay. <laughs> that's the bottom line. I mean, without okay. my tambourine playing, that's what we're boiling exist, down to. It's okay. That's true. That's true. I don't know what I'm, why I'm running around with, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the musical side of things. And then from the touring and all these other things, uh, yes, there's a lot of repetition and rehearsals and preparation for the tour. And the other aspect is what the stage is going to look like and what we, what there's several stages to rehearsing. There's a sort of the basic chunk, which is usually without the artist, it's just the music director and the band. And we nail the songs down, whatever they are. And then the artist comes and then we make little changes here and there. And then we do what's called production rehearsals, which is full on in an arena with 
the fire, with the lights, with everything, how exactly how it's going to be during the, the tour. And so are you guys, are you guys renting out Staples Center to do that? Not Staples Center because it's too costly. So what we did in 2010, we rented an arena in Peoria, Illinois, and we did uh, two weeks of production rehearsals there. And we did, we rented a hockey arena and we did the whole thing or we, they did. Um, and then we did the same here. We did production rehearsals in New Jersey and, um, or New York. I even forget where it is. And then <laughs> we did, uh, four days in Florida at, at the American airlines arena where the show was going to start. So, um, we were able to do that and that was really great. That's usually my favorite thing is cause you get, you start meeting the crew, all the hardworking women and men that make the show possible, lighting and the carps and the riggers and the wardrobe people and management and production and backroom staff and all these other things. And that's when you're, if you think, you know, being a member in the band, regardless of the instrument, you know, in a seven people band, you're small potatoes. Then you go to this thing and you're like, wow, look at all this, look at this huge arena. None of this, I couldn't do what I do if these guys don't do what they do, or these girls yeah. do what they do. So it's a constant reminder, or I try to remind myself, not that I'm not important, but that I'm part of a, a team. And that's why I just keep going back to sports and why sports have been such a massive part of my life is that ethic of, of understanding and fighting for a greater good. And if, you know, to do your job type of a philosophy that has always been part of my upbringing. And, and I try to do that as much as I can. And it's been great and it's paid its dividends. And, and you know, not a lot of people are using percussion in their music you know, maybe James Taylor or Santana and people like that um, in the odd band that wants like a quirky thing here and there, like bands like Paramore that I love, they don't particularly use like a studied, you know, hand percussionist per se. They just have a friend or a drummer play some percussion here and there, but they're using a percussionist. But um, very few far, few and far between bands do that. And I, so, I feel so fortunate to do that. And I feel like I represent to a degree percussion players and I want to do the best that I can. And, and a lot of it has to do with the energy that I bring. So to sort of finish this, this, this question, all these things have had to do with music, right? The learning of the songs, the blah, 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 blah. But when you're there and you have a crowd and you're demanded to, to make, you try, want to try to people make people dance and love and, and have fun and, and sing and have a great time. You can't just be there not caring or wanting to not look silly dancing or something like that, which is something that I always struggle with that insecurity of dancing and having a good time. Cause I didn't, I've never wanted to be seen as like this, somebody that doesn't take percussion seriously, you know? And the fact of the matter is that it's not that serious. You can have fun. You can do both things. So things shifted when you're there and you see this crowd and you're like, Oh, I got to jump now and I got to run and I got to do this. And I got to, you have these little gags with moments with Nick or Joe or Kevin or the guitar player to my left, Tom or the bass player, or whoever. So that starts becoming part of it that you can't rehearse for that. These things that organically happen. And next thing you know, I'm jumping around the same time, every song or doing this or doing the other. And I have little, little choreography stuff that I do with this guy or with that girl or whatever. And that's just kind of how it grows. So this is this organism that happens and um, it's great to see that every gig is different. And people ask me like, don't you get tired of the repetition? And the reality is like, it's different. Every time it's different. And I love that. So is that when you're on stop 38 of the tour in Cincinnati, Ohio, and 
you're thinking to yourself, all right, here we go again. The concert starts at 8.30, it's 8.29, and we got to do this for the 38th day in a row. Is that what's getting you up and getting you going? Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I love every day of tour. So it's, I'm never like, oh, boy, here we go again. Uh, <laughs> never, never. I've always loved it. I, I'm passionate to play every night, going to these arena. Maybe because I'm such a sports fan. Because when I go and I play at the Boston Garden, and when I go and I play at Madison Square Garden, we play at every arena you can imagine, every basketball, hockey arena. And I'm like, wow. Or like I'm a big Spurs fan. So when I go to the – when I go to the Spurs stadium or arena or whatever. Um, and I know that like Tim Duncan was there and David Robinson was there and Tony Parker were there and Manu Ginobili were there. That's amazing. Like I'm walking in the same halls that they did. That's incredible. So that's the closest that I'll ever get to being an athlete. So if I were to take that for granted and not value that, I thought, I think that it would be time to retire and let somebody that really wants to be there do it because it's unfair and i'm a massive proponent and believer in gratitude and you know i've also i also understand that when you're touring anybody that's out there touring gets to do what 99.99 percent of musicians don't ever get to do which is touring and make life their lives you know their livelihood music so to add to that the fact that i'm in a, such a massive band playing these arenas and these stadiums and nobody gets to do playing percussion, no less that's, it would be silly for me to not value it. And I take it to heart and I try to appreciate it every day as much as I can. So I wake up every day feeling like the most luckiest and, you know, most privileged person in the world. And, and I get to do things that I love and it, in places that I do. So I do not get tired and might sound like, that I'm pretending that, that to, to keep my job, but I really <laughs> never get tired. I mean, I get tired of not seeing my wife and not, you know, doing things that I'd like to do, like driving my own car or this or that or the other. But th it's not like they're not part of your life anymore. They're just not at the moment. They're, that yeah. is your life. It's just a different thing at, at, the, at, at the time. So thankfully with, with, with technology, I'm able to keep in touch with my family. Of course, my wife, like I said, and we interact and we watch shows together and we do as much as we can, but maybe, you know, maybe I'd say maybe years from now would have been the same, but I toured many years ago and it was incredible too. And I loved it without Facebook or without, you know, whatever. So, uh, I, I really, really love it. And it's the, it's different. It's like a, 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 an athlete playing, Every, they don't just like okay well, here we go again we play again it's not the same thing you're not doing the the same identical thing i might be doing playing the same songs in a very similar way but they're never identical there's little leeways and little things that i can do flexibility wise that allow me to remain sane or active or into what i'm playing and the same way not every musician plays the same way so there's like oh the guitar player did this or she sang this or he sang that or Joe did this, or that was amazing. Or you see a picture in the crowd that you didn't see, or a sign, or you see somebody in the crowd. And I mean, that has been to me the most beautiful thing from a personal perspective, uh, seeing people in the crowd, and specifically athletes, that I never thought I would. Uh, we've had, and when I say we, of course, I mean the Jonesburg. We've had uh, Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes, 
Lewis Hamilton. We had Julie Ertz, soccer player for the uh, women's national team. We, I mean, Cody Ballinger, um, Cole Tucker. I mean, we, I'm, it's just insane the people that we've had. And it's been a pleasure to see them and meet them. And that is something that I, I can never sort of explain to, to people how cool it feels that you're playing and one of your idols is there or, yeah. um, you know, and they're there to see you just like if you went to a game to watch exactly. Breeze play for the saints. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you're like, Oh, what do you play? Oh, I played percussion. Oh, cool, man. Have a great show. You know, to have Drew Brees tell you have a good show. That's insane to me. And I never, ever get used to it. And, uh, just to kind of, go back on this point really quickly you know i'm a like you know I'm a, I'm a massive soccer fan and the team that i support is arsenal they're from london and for the past uh year or so i've been growing into my obsession my obsession with the women's team has grown i'm a big feminist and i'm a big proponent of of, of women in sports and a champion of women in sports so anyhow i was able to get in touch with a few of the arsenal female players and they were my guests for a show in at the wembley arena in london and that was the most insane experience of my life was seeing three of my idols because I consider them my idols and sheroes and people that I admire. And my, one of my favorite, well, my favorite female soccer player was there. So I had Beth Mead, Danielle van der Donk and Louise Quinn, who are three people that I, three players that I look up to and admire. And I watch every weekend and I will wake up at four in the morning and that whole thing. <clears throat> and I was able to watch them play many times on TV and on the internet. And then they came to watch me play and we met and we become friends. And that is something that I can't put into words how through music, through the playing of shakers and tambourines, I've been able to meet people that I never thought I would and play in places I never thought I would. Like that day I woke up and I opened the window and there's, I'm across the street from the Wembley arena, um, the stadium, the, the massive soccer stadium. We played at the, smaller arena club <laughs> type place but um yeah so meeting people like them is just something very very special and the cool thing about that is that as much as i'm a fan of the drew breezes of the world and all that other stuff it's no tom brady but uh <laughs> it's it's they weren't my guests these girls were and obviously you can't compare it when you have like my sister and my nephews and, and my wife coming to shows or people my friends and stuff like that or meeting people like you and stuff there it's a different vibe but that whole sort of excitement of somebody that you love and you look up to and you admire to see them in the crowd and dancing and having a great time is so surreal. And, and it's just one of the most unforgettable nights of my life. So you've been itching for the last 45 minutes to talk about sports. So we'll just dive right into it. Let's From it. You went, went to school in Boston. Tom Brady to Tampa Bay. Give it to me. Look. <laughs> I think he's earned the right to do anything he wants. I want him and his family to be happy. He has nothing to prove. I encourage him to go to a market where it's going to help the sport grow even more. I love the fact that he didn't go to an easy quote unquote team that's going to be in the playoffs you know, he didn't go to Dallas. He, well, I don't know if Dallas is going to go to the playoffs. That's a different story. But he didn't go to Dallas. He didn't go to Seattle or what. I mean, I'm not saying that he would play over the, the current quarterbacks that they have. But you know what I mean? Like a, a, yeah. a team that's already set there, they're maybe missing something like that. Or, 
or even even if he's in, in on the bench, you know, some to be part of, of a winning team. Um, I never expect Tampa Bay, not in a million years, but you know, I, uh, I respect him immensely and I want him to be happy and I don't care what other fans say. I, he can go to any team and I'm going to be happy for him. And, uh, it's the beauty of sports. And, you know, well, one of the things that this other stuff has taught me meeting these people is that they're human beings they're your friends. And yeah, you, of course I love to give an example, Arsenal, but any of the, 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 my now friends or people that I met from, from the team, if they go to the rival teams, I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to support them. I'm going to hate the team, but I'm still going to want them to do well. So not that I've met Tom Brady, but at some point you start realizing like, Hey man, there's just bigger things than, than what my opinion about something is, you know? So I want him to be happy. I guess that's it. You described yourself earlier as a a champion of women athletes and, and the movement to find more support for women's sports and things like that. What inspired you to take such an interest in women's athletics and support them to the degree that you have? I mean, you look at like the U S women's national team and the soccer team and how successful they've been. And, and you talked about Arsenal's and their ladies team just now being your most honored guests at a concert. What led you to this point where you, you take such an interest in, in becoming an advocate and, and a spokesperson for them? Well, I think even though women are not minorities in the sense of, you know, statistics, right? I've always felt that they have not been treated as fairly. And it's not like only my opinion. I think it's a global thing. And in sports, I saw firsthand how I would underestimate women in sports and how it took me till basically many years later in my life where I was like, wait a minute, they are incredible athletes. Not that I didn't before. Of course I would watch Serena play and all these Lisa Leslie and all these people. I'm like, Oh my God, they're unbelievable. But you, I was always surrounded by this idea of not being them, not being good enough like or like the men or as good as men because that's what you're fed your whole life and then what, all you need to do is take a step back and be like hold on a second let me see this let me watch them play and you're you're going to realize that they're just as good if not better and they they they're intangibles in sports that I started seeing how women are better in a lot of things than men so the the sort of the the moment was by the way I've always been a feminist I've always loved the figure of, 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 or the idea of helping women and helping people in general. Uh, but maybe cause I've had a, have had a wonderful mother, sister, aunts, and my wife and my female friends are all incredible people that I admire and respect and, and adore. Um, and I know that how their struggles in life and society and, and certain things because of their, their sexual orientation, not orientation, but their, you know, yeah. their genre, you know, gender, there was a moment a few years ago where the Arsenal men's team were, and they still aren't really that good. And one of the things that I criticized about them was their lack of effort and being present in the game and being thinking about social media and the cars and that whole modern footballer type of thing. Parallel to this, I started watching the women play and realized how they had no support. There was virtually anybody in the stadium and they tracked back, they defended, they gave it their best, they would win titles, they would do it with 
10 people in the crowd with 100,000 people. It didn't matter. They were just playing. So I love that duality of, wait a minute, why are they doing, why are these guys getting all the money? Why not them? They're the ones that deserve it. And that type of stuff. Parallel to this, the whole Megan Rapinoe stuff with equal pay and all these other things. But I've always felt that women are just as good as men. I was just never proactive in that belief. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody or a lot of people assume that they are good, but I want to enjoy it. And I want to see it and I want to, I want to witness it with my own eyes and having a niece also helps, you know, my niece that, that is a super into football and soccer and futsal and stuff. And to see her and it's like, why does she have to have Messi and Ronaldo in her books? Why not, you know, Tobin Heath and, and Megan Rapinoe and, and Daniel van der Donk or Beth Mead and people like that. And, and I think that's really, really important. And another aspect of, of the women's sport that, that I admire and respect is how open they are with sort of their sexuality in the sense of they're very much open or the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community is much more sort of, they feel safer with, with women's sports. You know, there's way more women that are, um, open with their, their sexual orientation being homosexuals than men. So that's something that, uh, that, that fascinates me about the culture, how we have countless amounts of women having the guts, so to speak, to come out and say who they are and express who they are and empower young people to be themselves. Whereas there's still this stigma about men in sports that it's so, you know, corrosive to a young man's growth in, in their identity and all this thing that I think it just seems like everything is more or has been not effortless, but just more organic and more beautiful, less business minded and more about the sport itself and um, society as, as, as a whole. And, and also I've always wanted to be part of something different. I like being a disruptor in a way. Everybody's looking here. I'm going to go over there. Where I grew up in Venezuela, nobody supported Arsenal. It was Barcelona, Real Madrid, AC Milan, Inter Milan, um, and teams like that, the sort of normal, typical teams from Italy and Spain. I supported Arsenal, you know, and, and all my friends were listening to Metallica. I was listening to Megadeth. Everybody was listening to this. <laughs> so I try to do something different, sometimes on purpose, sometimes organically, and, and, and I've grown to, to see in how having female students how they're just as good as the men. And they had to like battle, like why do, why does a girl put a guitar on, you know, her shoulder and everybody's like, Oof, let's see what she has to play. Why isn't she like, why wasn't like, okay, she's done. She's a guitar player. Like let's, let's see what she has to do. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah. wow, you're really good for a girl. And I have so many female friends in the business, bass players, guitar players that it's like, Oh, you're really good for a girl. Or like, Hey, I didn't think you could play, but man, aside from hot, you're really good. And it just, it, makes my blood boil and i think that it's not that they need help but the more i can do to help their cause the better uh, whether it's sports music or society in general or through my politics or whatever that that would be um so that was a very long-winded way and probably very unclear but um i think at the end of the day the reason why i'm a champion for that and try to be a feminist is because i understand the concept of feminism and I understand that it basically boils down to equal rights for women and men. So that is a very easy belief and a very, very easy thing for me to be okay with and pr 
propose and be a champion of. It's the problem when people don't realize what the, that word means and they assume that it's something else and it's toxic and all these other things. And when yeah. I think that that ignorance or lack of wanting to learn is what's really toxic and, and not dangerous, but it could lead to a dangerous thing. Yeah. You, you and I met uh, back on September 11th when you came mm-hmm. to Cincinnati. You guys played in at what was U.S. Bank Arena. Now it's been renamed. But when you played there, about a month after that, you had a bit of a disaster is probably not the right word. I guess a tragedy uh, at your house. But there was an interesting end to that story that is ties into your um, love of soccer and how soccer's influenced your life. So about a month after that concert in Cincinnati, what happened? And how have you recovered since then? Okay, so to to make it as short as possible, um, because I, I just don't don't want to get into too many details. Yeah, because I will at some later point. But we, my wife and I, our home um, suffered greatly through these fires that happened in last October. So part of our house burned, and it damaged all the inside of our house, and. Um, it was very difficult to deal with. I was on tour and, you know, I felt helpless and she was here on her own. Obviously my worry was for her to be safe. I didn't care about the house. Um, but thankfully the house is still standing and it will be remodeled and everything's going to be great. And even with this pandemic, we're able to live here as well as we can. And we're very lucky. We have a roof over our heads and, you know, some days are easier than others, but overall we're very, very fortunate when there's people out in the street, you know, sleeping in, in, during this whole thing. So we're very, very, very happy um, people. And this was a, has been a difficult time, but uh, we try to manage as best as we we can and we could, and we continue to do that as much as possible. Um, So that's basically what happened. And that's what we're still trying to deal with to this day. Yeah. So when you were, when you got the call from your wife that this was happening and she asked you what you wanted to save, what was your first thought? Now, people, you would, you wanted to save your your instruments, right? Or was it not your instruments? Not really. Like I'm not a I'm not a gearhead. Um, I'm not a person that col- I collect instruments, but I'm not one of those like, oh my god, if I lose that drum or blah blah. I don't care. I'm so thankful and so, you know, I I'm not religious, so I never say the word blessed. But for the sake of this, I feel so blessed that I have endorsements. So if anything happens. I can call my symbol company and buy it from them or replenish my stash or whatever. But when my wife called, I asked her to save my three, I collect soccer jerseys. So I asked her to save three of my special soccer jerseys that I've owned for many, many, many years. And um, she did. So that was my only concern was you get out of the house. And if you have time, basically get these three things. And she did. And uh, I will always be grateful for that. And obviously more grateful that she's alive than anything else. But um, yeah, that was, that was my concern. None of them, my guitars, none of my basses, <laughs> none of my drum stuff, none of my books or anything like that. Those are, that's all replaceable, but the jerseys, even though they're replaceable, they have very, very special meaning to me. Three of them that, um, you know, you know, you're yeah. a sports fan, you know? And, yeah, and, oh yeah. And I have them and they're safe and sound and nothing will ever happen to them. 
so you've been more than gracious with your time over the last hour to talk about all these things. And I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was with everybody sitting inside right now and hopefully adhering to this quarantine and, and trying to get rid of this horrible pandemic happening in the United States and around the world. I wanted to give people an outlet to sit back, listen to some talk about music, the Jonas Brothers, some sports flavor thrown in there too. But I wanted to close with asking you, uh, I didn't want to dwell too much on on the coronavirus, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask somebody as high as you in the music industry about how it's affecting the music industry. And there's a lot of people online right now, a lot of musicians, I should say, saw uh, Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks the other night doing a special on TV um, from, you know, separated from their whole crew and, and a lot of musicians are going on Instagram live and trying to do, like I said, TV specials, YouTube specials, whatever it may be, but it might be hard to monetize some of those things. Tours are canceled. So much of this industry is changing, but everybody's going through it together. From your perspective with a tour, well, you guys, you guys had finished the tour, right? Yeah. We just finished. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys weren't going to go or, you know, you guys had finished the tour, but a lot of tours have been canceled. Zach Brown just canceled his yeah. tour dates for the for the rest of the year. So how do you see this pandemic affecting the music industry? And what are musicians doing uh, from your end of things? What do you see them doing in the most productive sense to try and make it through right now? Man, that's a really, really good question. And I don't really feel like I have answers for it per se. Like I can speak from personal experience. I was very privileged to have this timing line up perfectly where we finished the tour and the tour was over basically. And we just had this thing in April. We were supposed to be in Vegas right now to play for a month. Obviously that got canceled. Um, I was able to be smart with my money and save. So I thankfully I'm not worried about money. Um, of course I am worried about money. I'm saying I could be much worse cause I've been yeah. homeless for two weeks and I've lived day by day, you know, struggling for many years as a musician and all that. So I've, I know it. So that's what worries me the most, Paul, if, if, I, if I'm being completely honest with you is my friends and people that I know that like live, you know, lesson to lesson or, you know, they, they count on every single penny to survive and to, to to pay their, their bills and all that other stuff. And I'm also, as a, as a Latino and an immigrant, I, it really pains me when a lot of my friends have, you know, as, a, as, a, as an immigrant, you or I had an O-1 visa, I don't anymore, but it's an extraordinary ability visa, which means that you can only work in your craft. So in other words, musicians can only do music legally to make money. So if you're an ethically sound person, not that, not to get too deep, but you wouldn't do anything else. So whereas an American person can do, can get work doing something else, whether it's at something online or whatever, the, the, the immigrant can't through legal means they cannot do it. So that's what I'm even worried about the most, you know, the people that, that, that had that uh, as their only way of surviving and being in this country or the person that, you know, imagine, struggling your whole life to get out of a country or finally make it to America because you live, you love here and you want to add value to this culture or whatnot. And you work really, really, really hard. And then you get here. And then a month later you're hit with this virus and you can't 
do anything and you run out of money because you have no income. Yeah. So those things are, are horrible. And a lot of the, the crew people that have these families and have all, all, it's just bad news all around. I'm fortunate to be in the position where I am, where I am uh, physically and, and, and mentally and professionally where uh, it hasn't affected me as much as it could. Um, and I'm, I feel very thankful for that. I don't know what the industry is going to do. I personally have tried to always seen music as, it's going to sound rather controversial, but I've never seen music as my way of earning money, like performing. I've always taught as my way of making money. And I love teaching more than anything in the world, more than performing. But that's how I make money through teaching any sort of tour gigs and all that stuff. That's always sort of this bonus for me that it's like, holy crap, I'm getting paid to do this. This is insane. So when I put out content, when I put out my own music or something like that, or record with people, I don't expect to gain anything in return. So I think what a lot of this is doing for a lot of artists is amplifying this sort of desperation and need of like, here's the stuff. So you buy it and, and I live. And that's very difficult to deal with um, for them. And, and, and as a colleague, I don't really know how to. And, and I don't think that's the right, correct necessarily way to do things, to do stuff to expect. There's this sort of almost like this guilt trip of, of here's my Patreon, you know, pay me this. And so I can, I don't know, it's very, very strange. And I think it's, you know, I can see why people wouldn't agree with me or think that I'm seen in a very close minded sort of selfish way. Um, but I've never seen, I see music as art and art is the communication between the artist and the observer. And that's it. Not the transaction between yeah. either one. So I think right now the moment is for the world to take a step back and breathe and realize what our priorities are, how you're living, realizing there's a difference between living and being alive and being a human being and being human and all these other things, you know, being humane and all these things that, that are very, very important. And that's why I think it's, it's key to take this advantage or this moment to, as an advantage or as an advantageous opportunity to learn, to grow inward, to maybe realize that we're not spending our time doing certain things that we should, that we're focusing our time on stuff that we shouldn't, that we're listening to other people that we, when we shouldn't, and, and it affects everybody. So um, I'm, it, obviously it affects your industry a lot and, and, and it's just a shame that everybody's going through that. And, um, you know, I think that we can learn from it. I think that now is the time, for example, I, I've always played, I've always loved bass and I'm really interested in the instrument. I, I will never, ever in my life have enough time, uh, as much time as I do now to practice bass. So I, I'm playing five, six hours of bass a day. I'm teaching myself languages. I'm doing other stuff that because I can thankfully afford to take the time and I take the, the quarantine seriously. Um, but there are people that don't have disability and they have to go out and work. And all those people that, you know, deliver groceries or, you know, flight attendants and all these other things that are just crucial. It's just, it just keeps reminding me of how small a part of, of the universe I am and how, um, the only way to connect is by being the best that I can be and trying to amplify other people's causes in my own and, and just try to help whether it's in music and broadcasting or whatever it is. But I really don't have the answers to what people are going to do because I think it's people's relationship with, with music is very personal. 
the way I see music is completely different than somebody else that I grew up with. And we see things differently. We see the industry differently and I'm okay with that. And it has worked for me so far, but I really, really get worried when I think about what this industry has in store in the future. And I'm always hoping for the best and I'm hoping that people sort of wake up and do things differently and, um, monetize things in different ways and also try to detach the monetization from music in general too because then you get into this deep rabbit hole of streaming and what we deserve and how much money my art is worth and all this other stuff that I just really don't really pay attention to to be honest with you um, not because it's not important but but because I think it's an endless conversation it's incredibly subjective last question here yeah you played on a bunch of night shows which one's your favorite Saturday Night Live. Easy. What was your favorite? What, what's your favorite part about it? Well, my favorite part was that it was a show that I grew up seeing as the mecca or the pinnacle of music or in the business. So, of course, I wanted to play in massive stadiums like Wembley Stadium and, you know, playing, you name it. But as far as you know, SNL, they, they do like 12 shows a year or some crazy thing like that. So, or 30, I forget what it is, but it's very, very few. So, so through the history of, of the, the show being on, only a handful of musicians have played it. So to be a part of that, to come from where I come from, to know that that was what I set out to do in my mind was the pinnacle, the one show I want to play is Saturday Night Live. Then I can retire. I don't care about anything else. But to be able to say that I play Saturday Night Live, that is, for me, the pinnacle of what a musician that likes to do the kind of stuff that I do or has worked to do the kind of stuff that I do, that would be it. So that was absolutely phenomenal for me. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you for the last hour. I... I can't say enough how much I appreciate it and you know from watching Cornhole back in August to That's right. meeting you in September and then getting to do this Demi and I, I really appreciate it no thank you man and like I told you before and how we met you know I as much as I do music and all that other stuff and as you know I love sports what you do is something that I dream or dreamt of doing you know some people ask me like how did you learn English you know because I've been speaking for, for a long long time I would stare at my TV and try to do and speak like Stuart Scott I would try to speak like Steve Levy, Dan Patrick, and Keith Oberman, and Craig Kilborn. And those were the, the guys that I try to pronounce English after and try to modify my speech um, in, in, you know, sort of in their, in their style. Yeah. So I love what you do and I admire what you do the same way that you admire what I do. And it's awesome that we have this, this connection and it's been a pleasure. So thank you so much for, for having me. And I hope that, um, your, your followers dig this and, and <laughs> get to watch more of your, your awesome content. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jonas Brothers percussionist Demian Ariaga. If you want to listen to his podcast, the Music Mentor Podcast, you can find it on Spotify, among other platforms. It just got published to Spotify, so just search for the Music Mentor Podcast. You can follow Demian Ariaga on Twitter, just search his name, and you can follow me by just searching my name as well. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time on Paul's Points.